Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signpost. And today, I am really excited about the guest that we have with us because he's one of my favorite historians in the entire world. I read everything that he writes, and it's fascinating because it's so wide-ranging in terms of uh, in terms of sometimes I'll pick up a, a book or an article on an issue I didn't even know I was interested in. And by the time I'm 10% of the way through, I'm passionate about that issue or that historical figure. And that's uh, Dr. Thomas S. Kidd, who is uh, he's a history prof at Baylor University, the James Vardaman uh, Endowed Professor of History there. And he's the associate director of Baylor's Institute for Studies of Religion. He's written a lot, uh, and you will have seen his work in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and he has several books that are coming out uh, over the next uh, year or so. And I want to talk about some of those uh, issues today. One of those is about America's religious history, faith, politics, and the shaping of a nation. And the other is uh, who is an evangelical? Uh, the history of a movement in crisis. And so these, of course, are are very relevant topics to our time right now. Tommy Kidd, thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me. Now, in my understanding that you also have a uh, an American history textbook that's just dealing with the, the breadth of American history. Is that right? That's right. Uh, that has come out as we're talking, and it's with B&H Academic, and it's really pitched to the Freshman level Christian college market is sort of the bullseye of what we were going for there, and a lot of Christian colleges, as you know, are sort of struggle with to, you know what textbooks to use, especially outside of um, Bible and religion classes. Uh, there there just aren't a lot of great options, mm-hmm. um, and and so we thought that uh, that I could produce something that would come from a Christian perspective, but would also bring a kind of professional historical perspective to the topic, um, and hopefully will meet a need in a lot of Christian colleges. Well, of course, we we hear often about the sorts of uh, ideological struggles uh, that come with the, the teaching of history. And so yes. you can have, on the one hand, something like uh, Howard Zinn's uh, People's History that really gives the the impression that the American project is an evil uh, project uh, for mm-hmm. the for the most part, uh, and then you can have other uh, history uh, history works that seem to just whitewash everything that isn't uh, triumphant in mm-hmm. American history. So, how do you sort through all of that kind of conflict? Well, it's it's a real challenge, um, and yeah, I, I think as you get narrower focus on things like the American founding. Uh, the temptation often for Christians is to say, "Well, don't you know? You know, all the founding fathers were believers, and and it's sort of this uncomplicated picture of Christianity's role in the founding, and then it's all kind of gone downhill from there." <laughs> and so, I, I'm trying to show uh, throughout the story of American history how profoundly important uh, religion is, Protestantism, evangelicalism. Um, but that that's not always uh, an unvarnished good, mm-hmm. um, and that there, there's problems. I think we know well now that with Christians and slavery, mm-hmm. uh, Christians and the civil rights movement, and so forth. So um, I'm I'm trying to foreground the, the role of faith, and of of course many many ways that faith plays a heroic role in American history. Um, and and yet that it's also problematic at, at times, disappointing uh, at times, and and I think I found in writing the textbook that 
especially once you get to the 1960s, um, is when my perspective on what has happened over the past half century really starts to diverge from the dominant secular textbooks because mm. uh, they 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 tend to say, well, first you have the civil rights movement, and then you have the women's rights movement, and then you have the gay rights movement, and then you have the legalization of abortion, and and this is it's all part of their sort of seamless fabric of uh, you know progressive development and, and individual rights, individual mm-hmm. expression. And I, I, I felt like that was where I, I tended to take kind of a, a minor chord of sort of approach yeah. on on those kind of issues and say, you know, I, of course, I'm, I'm fundamentally sympathetic to the civil rights movement, but these others often came with uh, serious downsides. Mm. When you look at, uh, for instance, the issue of slavery, what can we learn about the way that religion was used in terms of propping up uh, slavery and then later Jim Crow and the way religion was used to oppose those things? Well, it it really is um, a dilemma, I think, in terms of the theological uh, role for for Christians in the debate over slavery in in particular. Um there, there's a, a long-standing, you know, millennia-old uh, anti-slavery position among Christians, mm-hmm. but because um, slavery was so entrenched in the American South by the early 1800s, um, there was every cultural and social and economic pressure for white Southern Christians to be pro-slavery, and when they looked at the Bible— they did not see a clear statement of "Thou shalt not own slaves." I, I you know, I was tell my students, I wish there was that kind of eleventh commandment that, that that would just show that these people were in outright disobedience of of the scripture. But as we know, I mean, the scripture uh, is um, you know kind of surprisingly ambivalent. It's dealing with slavery in the ancient world, not chattel slavery of. Uh, the kind that existed in the American South, and so you know, Paul says, "Slaves obey your masters," and 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 so forth. And so, if you were pro-slavery uh, and a Christian, uh, or at least a professing Christian in the antebellum South, there was really no uh, compelling biblical argument to get you to see that it was immoral. Um, I think it was immoral from beginning to end because of the chattel nature of people being bought and sold and stolen away from their homes Mm -hmm. in Africa and so forth. But the letter of Scripture was not as clear uh, as as we might hope that it it should be. And so I think that you you have these entrenched sides, some really militant anti-slavery Christians, some really militant pro-slavery Christians, and they just simply couldn't solve the issue and so it you know requires uh, the work of uh, general grant and general sherman and so forth to get to the you know, the the institution of slavery destroyed and and so lincoln who is kind of skeptical about christianity but increasingly i think is c- coming back towards his own uh, parents faith during the civil war he's the one who has to say you know both sides read the same bible and pray the, to the same god um and and pointing out the the kind of irony and tensions of Christianity's role over over slavery, and as you suggest, I mean, there's there's similar dynamics going on in the civil rights movement. Of you know, we're, we're so often just bound by our culture, mm-hmm. uh, and our culture dictates to us what we believe about these kind of salient uh, political issues of our time. It's 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 humbling, I mm-hmm. think. 
You mentioned that you you think that uh, Lincoln was was sort of coming back to his parents' uh, religion. Uh, I yeah. mean, sometimes people, if they think of Lincoln, they just think of him uh, as a revered figure, and so uh, maybe some Christians just assume, well, he was a he was a great man, so he must have been a great Christian. But most people who have some historical awareness realize this is not a church member, uh, maybe right. one of the most religiously disaffiliated uh, political leaders that we have had at that level. Uh, what uh, what makes you think that he was maybe on a on a journey back? Well, he grew up in a in a devout uh, Baptist Calvinist Baptist family uh, on the frontier, and uh, it it seems like that by the time he was a teenager, he was already being exposed to skeptical writings, things like Tom Paine's The Age of Reason and, mm-hmm. and this sort of thing, and seems to have gone through a skeptical phase as a young man. But I, I think that there's a comparison to be made to Ben Franklin. Uh, in the sense that, that that's kind of Franklin's story, too, grows up in a devout Puritan family, exposed to skeptical writings as a, as a teenager, goes through a skeptical phase. But I think for Franklin and for Lincoln, as they go, grow older and the weight of political responsibility weighs heavy on their shoulders, I think both of them go through uh, a kind of gravitating back towards thinking that uh, that faith is important, that that providence is working somehow in American history. I think when you see the nation going through war and revolution in Franklin's case and uh, all the demands that, that that puts on you as a leader, um, it, it's, it's kind of tough to be, <laughs> be adamant about your skepticism yeah. and your religion in times like that. And so I, I, and Lincoln, of course, has terrible family tragedies, uh, struggles apparently with depression himself, and mm-hmm. and I, th- I think all those kind of personal and political factors lead him back towards an appreciation, at least for sort of the biblical tradition, and and that's why it comes out so strongly in the Gettysburg Address and his second inaugural address, and and Lincoln becomes, I think, the greatest articulator of the the biblical tradition in American politics, ironically. Uh, given his his skepticism, he's able to employ religious rhetoric to the greatest effect, I think, of any American president. You know, that's one of the things that you do really well is to point out uh, both how important biblical revelation has has been, if only to react against sometimes or to be informed by from a distance in American life, but also to to point out that um, that the, the mythologies that we can build, either of all of the uh, founding fathers as being uh, atheists, uh, secularists who didn't want uh, biblical revelation anywhere near uh, the public square, or the mythology of the founders as born again Christians uh, to a to a man or to a woman, in the case of Betsy Ross and some others, uh, that, that both of those are not the the case. That the situation is a lot more complicated than that. Why do you think that we as modern Americans are drawn to that sense of the founding fathers as being really mascots for whatever we are, whatever we believe right now. Yeah, that's right. I think both the left and the right, uh, secularists and Christians, are tempted to use history for primarily present uh, political purposes, and that's always a bad approach to start with, partly because history so often introduces us to people who are just very different from us. And famous saying, you know, the past is like a foreign country. They do things differently there. Mm-hmm. So you, you go to the past and, and you should expect to find people who are just very different 
from anyone you know today. And I think uh, Franklin and, and Jefferson are two great examples of this. Uh, people who are skeptical, uh, some of the other major founders, uh, Patrick Henry is uh, one uh, who I think is, is really is a traditional believer, but, but Franklin and Jefferson are really are uh, deists or kind of Unitarians, if you want to put it that way. But they're so conversant with the Bible. Um, Franklin knows the King James Bible backward and forward. Mm. Uh, it's because he grew up in a Puritan family mm-hmm. and they didn't have much else to do. Right? Yeah, I mean, they, yeah. they're just, I mean, they're, they, and so he, I, you know, I'm an evangelical myself, you know, and I mean, I read the Bible every day, but sometimes I, I thought, I think Franklin knows the Bible better than I do. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and Jefferson's the same way. He doesn't have the text mastered the same way that, that Franklin does. But, uh, you know, Jefferson routinely throughout his whole life is reading the New Testament in Greek. He reads the Septuagint. Uh, (laughs) I mean, his level of biblical scholarship surpasses, I I suspect, many pastors today. Mm. Um, And that's that's Jefferson. I mean, you think, how how could this be? Well, it's because... To them, I mean, it's what they grew up with. It for Jefferson, it's this is what it means to be a learned gentleman mm-hmm. uh, in in the South, and and it's what it means to be an intellectual in his time is to be deeply conversant with the Bible, mm. um, and that, that's just different from our culture today. You mentioned Jefferson. Let's let's take Jefferson as a test case here, uh, because I find that when I'm reading the founders, Jefferson and Madison sing for me. I mean, the, the language that's being used, the vision that's being given is, uh, is so profound and, and, and in many places so profoundly beautiful that they seem heroic. And then on the other hand, you, you turn around and you look not just at, at the skepticism and the, the religious, theological, and ideological ideas that, that Jefferson had, but his personal conduct in some ways. I know there's a lot of historical dispute over what happened uh, exactly with Sally Hemings, but we do know that there's at least a good case to be made that uh, Thomas Jefferson was sexually exploiting uh, people that that uh, who had no power uh, under under his watch, and and even before that, that this uh, person who wrote uh, for us that all men are created equal and endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights was owning uh, human beings in an evil and an unjust system. How then do we go into the 4th of July in that case with that sort of ambivalence? Or then later, when we look at other people that that we tend to think of as heroes, but then we see some dark and sometimes very ugly things going on in the background. Yeah, it's it's a real challenge. Um, and of course, I think you could look at some people, uh, you know, uh, George Washington, who I think, even though, you know, he's a, he's a slave owner, I think, it, it, you know, there's a lot of things to admire about his personal integrity and, and leadership. So I think it, it runs, you know, a, a range. You mm-hmm. certainly have that among people like, you know, Jonathan Edwards, uh, George Whitfield, the great revivalist of the Great Awakening, both slave owners. Um, it, you know, it, it and, and I think, in our cultural moment, we are struggling to know what to do with this more than ever before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I recommend to people to just uh, remember that we're all uh, locked up in our time and place and, and culture. 
Um, and that if if the Lord tarries, you know, 200 years from now, we can be sure that uh, people will be looking back on us and saying, what were they thinking? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, what's yeah. the matter with these people? And I think like to style ourselves as the people, we're, we're the morally enlightened ones. We're, we're the ones who are the epitome of cultural progress. I mean, people across the political spectrum tend to think that about ourselves. And I mean, I tell my students, you know, look, uh, just remember, if you're born into a white slave-owning family at the time of the American Revolution, it's almost certain you would have died as a slave owner and supporting slavery, thinking slavery was a positive good. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, before we wag our fingers at these people, uh, we need to remind ourselves that we're not that different from them. Um, Now, I mean, I do think that you have people like George Whitfield, who I've written a book on, as you, you said, I mean, he he was more of an activist for slavery than, say, Jonathan Edwards was. Yeah. So, so he's he's more problematic, I yeah. think. Uh, you know, you know Jefferson, his relationship with Sally Hemings, which most professional historians think is, you know, about as demonstrated as you can demonstrate anything mm-hmm. like that, especially after the the DNA testing. Uh, and so, um, with people like that, I mean, there there's. A, especially egregious things that they did that sort of stand out in their time yeah um, that, that I think I, I think are subject to greater criticism but but in general I think we just have to be humble about realizing that if you were there uh, in their time uh, we, we shouldn't assume that we would have done any better than they did and that requires a deep Augustinian view of sin. Uh, where yeah. sin is uh, taking place not only in terms of uh, the flesh, uh, but the world and the devil. And so often there can be an entire atmosphere around one that can render one's own uh, sins to be almost invisible. That's a sobering and scary thought uh, for me yes. anyway. Now, you've got this book coming out called Who is an Evangelical? And uh, I've read this book uh, ahead of time and love it. One of the reasons I think this is going to be a helpful book is because I find when I go to college campuses, you're on a university campus uh, all the time, I I, uh, go around to them all the time, and I find in campus ministries, this is is often about the number two question that's asked if we have an open Q&A session, which is, we don't want to be called evangelical, Uh, and so what should we do? And, And my response is to say, you know, I'm as kind of frustrated as you are uh, about that, but I don't know an alternative uh, to it. I think we just have to define what we mean when we say evangelical as opposed to something else. Why are we in this situation where where that word is so contested? In a way, it's a lot longer story uh, in evangelical history because, um, as I suggested with Whitfield and Edwards, I mean, these are some of the founding fathers of the evangelical movement in the 1730s and 40s, and yet they're uh, connected to things uh, like slavery and slave owning that are are problematic in, in, in ethical and uh, moral ways in their time. Um, and they're they're connected even to uh, political, imperial concerns that seem very, very temporal um, and maybe short-sighted. And you can say that about you know virtually any evangelical leader as you go on through, through time, especially ones who had access to uh, politically powerful uh, people. Mm-hmm. For sure, you can say that about Billy Graham. I mean, uh, you know, when, when 
you think about Graham's succession of relationships with with presidents, who would turn that down? Yeah. Uh, but it also led him into uh, especially a really problematic relationship with Richard Nixon. Uh, as he acknowledged. Yes, he, he acknowledged. And, and uh, Graham uh, ended up being uh, kind of one of Nixon's last defenders and, mm-hmm. and, and then finally realized uh, what what a sham uh, Nixon had been, and and so, but I, I think I think in a way the the key turning point is probably 1976. Um, sometimes we think of the Moral Majority as as the the key turning point. It is important, but 1976 um, is the first year uh, in in at least in the modern era when the term evangelical itself starts being used commonly mm-hmm. in the media, and it's never used to discuss evangelical revival yeah. or evangelical church services or evangelicals praying with their families. It's always used to discuss evangelicals' political behavior. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, we can't, we can't blame the media for that. They, they don't care about religion right. as religion, usually, unless mm-hmm. it's involved with scandal. Uh, but, but they do care about religion's role vis-a-vis politics. Yeah. And so Jimmy Carter is nominated uh, 76 uh, Newsweek calls it the year of the evangelical in 76. And and maybe most importantly, that's the first year when Gallup begins to ask people in polling whether they're an evangelical or whether they're uh, born again. Mm-hmm. And if they say that was, yes. That was very frustrating to my uh, predecessor in this job at the time, Foy Valentine, who said yeah. evangelical is a Yankee word. We're not evangelical. Yeah, We're not <laughs> that's right. That. I remember that. And and so uh, they start asking people if they're evangelicals. And if they say yes, then they go on to ask them about their political behavior. Mm-hmm. They, don't, they don't ask them, how often do you go to church? Yeah. Or what do you believe about the Trinity or anything like that? They ask what, how they vote. Mm-hmm. And that's the moment to me at which uh, evangelicals, core practicing evangelicals, start to lose control of the public image of their movement. And, and it, it, there's a way in which it's almost nobody's fault, but I think it, it bears uh, terrible consequences for uh, evangelicals today who are constantly having to try to explain what they mean by evangelical. Yeah. Yeah, which to some degree is always going to be the case when you're dealing with with shorthand. And as you mentioned, not just in 1976, I don't know a lot of people uh, right now who define themselves when they're just talking to themselves as evangelicals. No, uh, you know, no and I, I mean, I go to as evangelical a church as you can find. It's in Waco, Texas. It's mm-hmm. a big Baptist church. And it's as evangelical as all get out, yeah. and I, there's almost nobody there besides me who would ever use the word evangelical. Yeah, in my church as well, and I think that's I think that's typical. Uh, I'm always dealing with younger evangelicals. I have this conversation about every single day, uh, where you have younger evangelicals. Oh no, the evangelical movement is collapsing. It's falling apart. It's all of this scandal, or all of this hackery, or all of this whatever. And I always have to turn around and say, hey, guys, that's that's the case. Those same conversations are being had in every single generation, just mm-hmm. about, uh, that we have going all the way back to Carl Henry's uneasy conscience and before that and the, the response to the uneasy conscience. When you look at you're with you're with young uh, non-Christians 
and with young uh, evangelical Christians and other uh, folks all the time. Are you hopeful or are you nervous about the future of, of evangelical Christianity in America? I'm, I think I'm mostly hopeful, actually. I mean, when you frame it that way, because I see uh, so many young people uh, at Baylor in particular who are, are what they're committed to is to Jesus and the church and kind of whatever you call it, uh, you know, this, this movement. Um, you know, sure, they know that there are problems and they, they know about the grifters and the hucksters. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that that doesn't define their faith. Yeah. And so what I see is, uh, you know, uh, kids who are interested in training to be missionaries and training to be pastors and church planners, and um, their their faith is. I mean, you can see it, it, in a really sort of healthy and unproblematic way, their faith is just not challenged by the politicization of the national image yeah. of of evangelicals. Um, and these a lot of these kids probably tend to be fairly apolitical themselves. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, they just see their primary commitment is to the Lord and to the church. I'm regular around hundreds of kids who are just like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I, I think, you know, I agree. I mean, what are we going to do? What, how do we get, you know, the national media to change the word that they use yeah. for evangelical? I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of fruitless. Right. Um, but what you know, whatever we call this movement, uh, especially from global perspective, uh, we're doing fine. Uh, the Lord's in control, um, and so I, I guess at at the end of the day, I have to be hopeful and optimistic about it. Yeah, I agree with you. And one of the things I've noticed going around to university campuses all the time is that uh, the students who are evangelical Christian students who are there in their campus ministries or who come to events or whatever, none of them are participating in their campus ministries or in their church life, or very few of them, because Aunt Sally's going to be asking, where were you Sunday morning? Or were you at your, your, your campus ministry event on Thursday night? And are you doing personal evangelism? They're, they're not there out of some sense of cultural pressure. They're there because they really uh, know the Lord and want to, want to serve the Lord. And on, on the other hand, what I notice is, and I really, I think I'd noticed this, but I hadn't put it into words until night before last, when I was talking to a friend of mine from the United Kingdom who said that secularization has gone to such a point in the UK that he's not encountering doing apologetics of various places. He's not encountering the sort of angry new atheist Christopher Hitchens sort of stuff that you would have had from 10 years ago. He's encountering atheist people who have never really been around real Christians and so have a sense of sort of curiosity about it. And I I said, you know, that is exactly what I'm experiencing when I go around uh, to college campuses. I I interact with a lot of atheists and agnostics and and secularists, but most of them don't see Christianity as the big bully omnipresent around them that they have to react against. They see it as something kind of weird and strange, and they're, they're curious about it which is a great opportunity to then uh, talk about, well, well, this is, this is why Christians believe what they believe, and, and, and here's what the gospel is. Yeah, I, I've, I've actually found that in uh, the academic publishing world, because mm. uh, so, you know, most of my publishing has been with secular academic presses, and you know, virtually all the people I work with there are not believers. Um, and, and I don't pick up 
you know, a, a bit of hostility towards me. I, th- I think they may find me sort of peculiar, right? Which right. what I think is a totally <laughs> appropriate reaction to <laughs> to Christians. Yeah. Uh, but 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 and you know where this flares up is when your faith then gets connected to cultural issues, yeah, yeah. Uh, views of sexuality and marriage and, and right. so forth. And then there really is trouble. Yeah. Um, but but if the, your faith is being encountered as faith in the living God uh, and salvation through Christ, uh, I don't, yeah, I think we're past sort of hostility to that. For them, it's like going to the zoo. I mean, yeah. it's like, wow, look at this interesting creature yeah. here. You actually believe things about God. Tell me about that. Yeah. Uh, and I think that represents an opportunity for the church, especially given the wreckage of, you know, the the sexual revolution and and all the changes we've gone through in our culture over the past half century. I, I think we're we're uh, you know interesting ways that we're entering an era of new opportunity for the church. Yeah, and where there's trouble, we've had trouble before. We survived the yes. Roman Empire. Yeah, uh, so. that's right. Tommy Kidd, uh, thank you so much uh, for being uh, with me today. These two uh, coming books that are coming out uh, this year, Who is an Evangelical and America's Religious History, when will they be available for folks, Tommy? So Who's an Evangelical will be out in September with Yale University Press, and then America's Religious History will be out in November with Zondervan. All right, you'll want to check those out. Tommy Kidd, thanks for being with me. Always great to talk to you. Great to talk with you. This is Russell Moore, and you've been listening to Signposts.